0: To enthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. I'm Lauren Gorn,
1: and I'm Gretchen McCulloch, and today we're getting enthusiastic about the vocal folds. But first, Lauren, I just have something to say. I'm really jealous of the chemistry people. Ah, oh, uh, okay. Why is that? So they have all these cool versions of the periodic table of the elements. Mm. Like you can get it in different colors and aesthetics and designs. And We have a table that gets used a lot in linguistics, the International Phonetic Alphabet Chart, but it just looks very boring. I want more versions of it.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of details on the International Phonetic Alphabet Charts, which is great if you need to know what's in each of the columns and the rows. But there's a lot happening, and once you know how it's all set out, I don't really read those anymore. I'm kind of there to just find the specific symbol that I need.
1: Right. I was thinking like, we could make a version that's sort of abstract and stylized. Hmm. If you don't know about the IPA, it would just look like some cool symbols in a grid. The IPA symbols are indeed very cool. But if you do recognize them, then you get to be kind of an insider. And in the meantime, it would be kind of useful for refreshing your memory of some of those rarer symbols you don't use as much.
0: Oh, like maybe some kind of Scandi minimalist aesthetic?
1: To go with your nice IKEA furniture? <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, but seriously,
1: uh, I want this. I also want this. I have another important question. What should we put our cool stylized IPA design on? Hmm. I mean, in the long run, it could go on lots of things. But before we
0: get ahead of ourselves, we need to run a special offer to offset the investment in getting this thing made. It's uh, a little bit beyond our usual in-house design skills.
1: That is very true. and Also, it would be
0: cool to use a special offer to make something available that we don't normally sell. Oh, this is finally our chance to make lens cloths. Uh,
1: okay, why
0: lens cloths specifically? Oh, well, They're portable and they're useful. They're practical, but you can also display your love of linguistics on something that you'd use anyway.
1: Okay, so this sounds really useful to you and me because we both wear glasses, mm-hmm. but what about people who don't?
0: Oh, Phone screens get grubby. Computer screens get fingerprints all over them. People have sunglasses.
1: I mean, this is fair. Like, I got a lens cloth from a conference once. I actually use it all the time. Best conference swag ever. So, what if I could have a linguistics themed lens cloth and put it in all of my bags? Yeah, exactly. Very much on the same principle as our
0: linguistics themed scarves. It's some stealth nerdery you can carry around with you and use.
1: Okay, so here's the deal. Everybody who wants a stylized IPA chart themed lens cloth. We're going to place one bulk order for them. This is your chance. Go to patreon.com slash Lingthusiasm. Join the Lingthusiast tier or higher by October 5th, and then we'll place the order on the 6th so we know how many to get.
0: And If you want several lens cloths, either to keep them in different places or to give as gifts or split with some friends, we have some options for those. And We have pictures of the design.
1: It's extremely snazzy looking, I have to say.
0: That's all at patreon.com slash Lingthusiasm if you get in by the 5th of October
1: 2022. Plus, patrons get all the usual perks like bonus episodes. Our most recent bonus was an introduction to a long-forgotten linguistic study about a rabbit. And If you need people to talk
0: about your linguistic enthusiasm with, or perhaps to admire your Lingthusiasm merch, patrons
1: also get access to the Lingthusiasm Discord. Thanks so much to everyone who's currently a patron. If you're already at that level, you will get a cloth in the mail. Look out for a survey from us for your address. Okay, vocal full demonstration. Mm-hmm. Let's start by putting our hands on our throats. Yep. And saying some sounds. Okay. Ha, <sighs> ah, ha. Ah, <sighs> ah. ah.
0: Ah. Uh, ha. 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 <laughs> ha. Ha. Sounds like the most underwhelming laugh track ever.
1: <laughs> the worst podcasters, was so funny.
0: <laughs> Very fake laughter. there. Um, <laughs> I am just gently touching my throat low down on the front of my neck. Uh, emphasis on the gently there. I can still feel the vibrations even with just a tiny fingertip.
1: Yeah. When I've done this in intro linguistics class or intro phonetics class, which is a very classic classroom activity, some people seem to be really comfortable like jabbing right at their voice box, and mm. I'm like, ooh, no, that's uh.
0: – Yeah, I can report the same. I don't know if it's something to do with differences in anatomy or just twitchy reflexes, but definitely a light touch for me.
1: Yeah, And for the purposes of the demo, doesn't matter. you can just sort of put your whole hand lightly at the base of your throat, which is what I do, or put a finger or two towards the middle, and you can do it while you're talking normally as well, which I'm doing right now. but it's sort of confusing if you're not making a, a very controlled sequence of sounds because you're also thinking about what you're saying, and that's kind of distracting. Uh,
0: yeah, great. Here we are. Um, if you're listening around people in public and you're continuing the grand tradition of being slightly silly in public in the name of linguistics.
1: Or if you really can't bear to do it now, do try out this demo sometime later when you've got a minute in a secluded location. Just put your hand in your throat, make some repetitive sounds, and feel what your throat's doing.
0: So when I'm making a ha sound, my throat is doing nothing. But when I make an ah sound, there's a buzzing that's happening.
1: Yeah, you can sort of feel the vibration in a very uh, cool 70s fashion. (laughs) And that buzzing is coming from your voice box, also called your larynx and specifically from the vocal folds or vocal cords that are inside that.
0: You might be able to feel a lump there if you've had a testosterone-based puberty. I can't. I don't imagine you can feel too much there unless you push down hard, which we've established is
1: not necessary. And sometimes they're called vocal cords. I think that's more common terminology because mm. you can think of sort of the cords or the strings on a guitar. Technically speaking, they're more sort of flaps of muscle. So rather than being cords that are attached at either end, their flaps are sort of attached all along one side.
0: I'm so glad we don't call them vocal flaps. <laughs> vocal folds <laughs> is fine by
1: me. Gross. They're also, you can see videos of them. Uh, you can go on YouTube – we will link to a video of this – and you can take a laryngoscope which goes like down your nose and has a little light, and you can see them flapping about and moving when someone's talking.
0: Yeah, Look, your vocal folds are mucous membranes. You have a lot of saliva. <laughs> uh, your vocal tract is quite lubricated. so It's not a particularly appealing video if you find the inside of a mouth. Be a lot. It's just that, but more.
1: They're really kind of gross. I think you get sort of a full-body cringe rippling through the intralinguistics classroom when you put the video up. So, you know, that's your warning. If you would like that or, or not like that, you can click on the link or not.
0: And if the vocal tract is like a meat clarinet, then the vocal folds are that bit that's like the reed that's making that vibration and making that noise happen.
1: Yeah, I think a meat clarinet is also not at all a disturbing metaphor. <laughs> You say it very casually, which is because we came up with it a year or so ago for the Crash Course Linguistics Phonetics video. But you know, you have sort of the, the other stuff you do to change the shape of your mouth and your vocal tract to produce different sounds, which are like pressing the buttons on the clarinet, and then the vocal folds are the reed. <laughs> or you could think of this as like if you're playing a trumpet and you need to make sort of a, a buzzing with your lips <clears throat> into the trumpet and that's sort of like what your vocal folds are doing, and again you sort of press the buttons and that affects what the sound is that comes out.
0: And When you have laryngitis, that affects and inflames the vocal folds inside your larynx, and that's why having laryngitis affects your ability to speak.
1: I had laryngitis once when I was an undergrad, Mm -hmm. uh, and it was the most exciting thing. (laughs) Why was it exciting, Gretchen? (laughs) Because I was midway through a linguistics degree. Uh And I'd heard the thing about, oh, you know, your vocal folds, your larynx, like laryngitis, that's what it is. And then I was like, it's true. I can't produce voicing. That's why I can only whisper because whispering is talking without voicing. Hmm. And this also means that if you're in a public place and you're trying to demonstrate this to yourself and you're not getting the effect, maybe because you're whispering or sort of doing it under your breath, which is you're not producing the exact thing that we're trying to study. This was something that happened to me when I was first reading books about linguistics, and they would say, oh, you know, the difference between th and the, as in Thing and then, and I'd be sitting there trying to feel the difference, but of course, I was quietly in the library, trying not to make any sounds. Mm. and so I couldn't feel the difference, and I thought this was like something wrong with me, but it turned out I was just not doing the thing
0: and so because voicing turns on and off throughout speech, it's why you feel a somewhat constant buzzing if you just hold your fingers to your throat while you're speaking. If you are only whispering, you're kind of losing a whole dimension of information on sound. And that's why if you play a game like, broken telephone or pass it on where a group of people whisper a message in a chain, the reason that you're likely to get something very different at the end from the beginning is that the whisper is removing a whole bunch of cues that you're using to make sense of what's being said.
1: Oh, that makes sense. So you're really just trying to figure out what something means by context. Like most of the time words are distinguishable in context. Hmm. But if you start with sort of a weird phrase, then it can sort of degrade in the whisper because it, you're doing it. I always thought it was just that like people are have bad memory or something. <laughs> like whispering is quiet. It is because whispering is quiet and it removes voicing. Amazing. And when we do vibrate our vocal folds, they're like an instrument. And how like an oboe has a bigger reed than a clarinet, and it makes a deeper sound. Mm-hmm. Or like a thicker string on a guitar is deeper than the thinner string on the guitar. So, depending on the person, depending on how long and how thick your vocal cords are, you can have what shows up as a deeper or higher-pitched voice.
0: – And a lot of what influences how large your larynx grows is whether or not you had a lot of testosterone in your puberty. So That's one of the things that causes this growth to be more so in some people than other people.
1: – Right. and If you didn't have a testosterone-based puberty initially, but you take testosterone later, your vocal folds will do that growth. It's effectively a second puberty.
0: – We should say in general, though, that just like you don't arrange the parts in a choir by lining people up by height, there's not a direct correlation with how big you are and how big your vocal folds are and the pitch of your voice. There's lots of other factors that go into it as well.
1: Yeah, and some of that variation is also, you know, individually people choosing how low and how high to pitch their voices, mm-hmm. and also people making those sorts of decisions constrained by a culture. Yeah. I remember I was in a phonetics class and learned that prepubescent kids in North America, who statistically all have the same vocal tract, still show gender differences in terms of their pitch huh. because socially speaking, the boys are more likely to choose to make their voices a bit deeper pitched than the girls for social reasons, even though physiologically they don't have any reason to.
0: Fascinating. So that's where it becomes a social thing, not just an anatomical thing. Uh, there's been some studies with Japanese speakers as well in Japan, where Japanese women have a higher pitch than American women, and Japanese men on average have a lower pitch than American men. So they kind of sit even further apart in the range, and that's a social thing around pitch that people learn as they learn to speak the language and live there.
1: And there's also a lot of overlap in sort of pitch range in the middle where. You know just like there's sort of hormonal factors that can influence how tall someone is and genetic factors that can influence how tall someone is but there's also a lot of overlap in terms of gender differences in height like it's not that all men are taller than all women or something like that
0: And that pitch has to do with how many times a second your vocal folds are vibrating and this can get measured by electroglotograph, which I like because it's an EGG or an egg <laughs> and it's a tiny little device that goes on your throat where your larynx is and it creates a little electric circuit that gets closed every time your vocal folds pulse together.
1: So this is like a little electrode that gets stuck on with like a sticky bandage mm-hmm. patch on your throat and then you can you can measure that? Yeah. So if there's a part of me that's moving like a hundred to two hundred times a second, because that's what Hertz means, why am I not more tired when I'm talking? <laughs>
0: It's because of the magic of the air pressure in your lungs that pushes up through your vocal folds and it takes a little bit of effort to get started but a bit like, you know, blowing a raspberry with your lips, but even more so because your vocal folds are perfected for this kind of work.
1: So also my vocal folds are like really jacked, is that what we're saying?
0: They are incredibly well <laughs> specified for this work. Okay. <laughs> and once they get started, that air pressure coming up from below lets them oscillate in a way that means you're not physically controlling each opening and closing. So That's why you're not getting too tired, but why it can be fatiguing to talk for a long stretch of time.
1: <laughs> and I guess this is also similar to our musical instrument metaphor, right? Because if I'm, you know, playing the clarinet, which I, which I used to do in high school, I wasn't going there and actually physically vibrating the reed hundreds of times a second. <laughs> I was directing a flow of air through it which would make the reed vibrate. Yeah. Uh, which is similar to the vocal cords and similar to what happens when you're sort of blowing air through your lips as well.
0: And a reminder of just how much of this kind of acoustic phonetics and figuring out how the parts of the vocal tract work And produce sounds is very much a type of physics that's being studied. –
1: Yeah, and and something that there's been a lot more work on the very fine-grained details of since recording technology has gotten a lot better. –
0: You can manipulate the vocal folds to create different effects, and one of those effects is what we think of as falsetto.
1: So falsetto, I, I kind of think of it as like those clip things that you put on a guitar, like a, a capo mm-hmm. where you can if you clip it on the guitar now every note on the guitar you could play it the same way they're all higher pitched so if you only use part of the vocal folds, then you're going to produce this thing that's higher pitched
0: yeah because you're only vibrating something that's smaller and you can do that quicker.
1: You know, Lauren, I've always wondered, like, can I do falsetto? Am I doing falsetto? Why, why don't I get falsetto? <laughs> you know, Just because I didn't have a testosterone-based puberty, does this mean I don't get to do falsetto? Or
0: You might not notice it as much because if someone who has a really deep voice does falsetto, it's much more noticeable. It can take a bit of training, but most people should be able to do falsetto. It's just if you already have a relatively high pitch to start with, it's not as noticeable when you're doing a falsetto.
1: Oh, okay. So it's just that if I did it, it would sound relatively similar to my regular voice, I guess. So we talked about the vocal folds as the thing that sort of produce sound in general, but they're also very specifically involved with certain types of sounds. Mm -hmm. So demo time again? I think so. (laughs) All right. Hands on your throats. Fingers gently (laughs) to your throat. And we can do (laughs)
0: ssss, this reminds me of our fricatives episode.
1: Indeed it does and f- v- f- v- also from the fricatives episode like v- voiced. That's convenient. V is voiced. Yes. So there are some pairs of sounds, many of them are in English, some are also found in other languages, where the difference between them is your mouth is in exactly the same shape, but your vocal folds are doing something different. In one case they're vibrating, in the other case they're just letting the air pass through.
0: And I can feel that, which is very convenient.
1: It's very neat, and you don't need a weird gross laryngoscopy to do it. <laughs> you could just feel the feel the vibration on your throat.
0: But this distinction isn't just in fricatives.
1: No, there's also voicing stuff going on with various other sounds. So we already looked at ah, uh, all the vowels are voiced. Ah, uh, ee oo. You can try some vowels, they'll all be voiced. So we have voicing distinction in those fricatives, but we also
0: have a voicing distinction in some other pairs of words like pat and bat, ten and den, cave and gave.
1: Yeah, and so if you're saying pat and bat, again your, your mouth Part is doing the same thing. It's just there's something different going on in your vocal cords that's affecting what the meaning is. Same thing with ten and den, t and d, the names, the letters, cave and gave. Try saying this out loud and attracting some strange looks. <laughs> <laughs> so with s and z, it's pretty easy to put your hand in your throat and feel a difference there because you can hold those sounds for a relatively long period of time. And this is sort of a problem when it comes to p, b. D, kuh, kuh, it's really hard to produce those sounds without a vowel after them, and that vowel is going to be voiced. and so it's hard to feel what's going on before that because these sounds involve a complete closure of air and then releasing it. Uh, so you stop up the air, they, they get called stops uh, <laughs> and you release it. <laughs> and that makes it hard to sort of feel contiguously what's going on in your throat. Because you have to release them into a vowel or into into something,
0: and what's happening is a difference in how the vocal folds are vibrating. There's also another little thing that happens in English at the same time.
1: Yeah, English also has this fun curveball. So I think uh, we need a classic British comedy sketch to illustrate this curveball.
0: Oh, if there is one, that's always very welcome.
1: (laughs) All right. So, this is a comedy sketch by a kind of old school British comedy duo called the Two Ronnies. I think there were two men both named Ronnie, Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, hence the name. And basically, there's this kind of laconic guy who comes into a shop and he asks for four candles.
0: And the shopkeeper gets down behind the counter and pulls out one, two, three, four white candles. He's got him four candles.
1: Ah, yes. You might think this is a reasonable response, but in fact, what the shop guy wanted was fork handles, as oh. in handles for forks, handles for his forks, which sounds pretty much the same, right? And so, what's actually going on is that words in English that begin with p, t, or k get pronounced as if there's actually kind of an h there, like in handles, like in handles. So fork handles. Fork handles, I'm deliberately putting a break there, and for candles, there is that sort of ghost of an H or very short H in the regular English pronunciation of candles.
0: It's like you want to be very careful if your surname is Hook to not call your son Michael. Ah,
1: because then you could say, Ah, yes, this is Mike Hook. Oh, you have a private chef, Gretchen. That's very fancy. No, I just know this guy named Mike Hook. <laughs> And this is sort of a an interesting type of distinction because it's not all of the time when you have a or k sound that it has this sort of ghost of an H attached to it. There's some contexts where you don't pronounce that H, and one of those is after S. So in a word like sky, you're probably not saying sky. <laughs> the, it's just sky. But this means that that K that's written as a K can kind of be pronounced like a G would be in some contexts,
0: Hmm. Because my brain doesn't hear that puff of air and so is just as likely to think it's a G.
1: Right. So have you ever heard the famous song that goes like, excuse me while I kiss this guy?
0: Yes. It's about making out with a man. No, wait. It's about (laughs) making out with the thing in the heavens.
1: (laughs) So, the lyric is supposed to be, excuse me, will I kiss the sky? S-K-Y. But many people mishear it as, excuse me, will I kiss this guy? G-U-I. So, because in that context, after an S, the K and the G really sound like they're doing the same thing. I think this is something that's really tricky for English speakers to wrap our heads around, Mm. because our writing system is telling us to like do this one thing, and yet it turns out that we're actually doing a different thing perceptually. And you've had however many years of your life minus a few at the beginning when you didn't know how to read yet, telling you this is what this sound is, and then it's like ah yeah, actually no, it's like something else going on.
0: The good thing is you can observe this puff of air that comes out with a p or a t or a k, and it doesn't come out with a b or a d or a g.
1: This is at least apocryphally. I never had a phonetics class that did this, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I've heard that some phonetics profs use fire to demonstrate this.
0: Ah, because if you hold a candle or something up, you can see the
1: air move. Yeah, if you hold like a lit match or a candle up in front of your mouth while you're making, k- p- t- you could like blow out the candle. I'm a little bit more risk adverse, and so
0: I hold up a tissue, and you see the same air moving with. <laughs> less of a risk of setting off the fire alarms.
1: Look, I mean, I don't want to make any promises like, don't try this at home in a dangerous location, please have adult supervision, etc., etc., exercise appropriate caution, but I just feel like it'd be fun to play with fire. If you don't
0: have live fire or a Kleenex to hand, you can just hold your hand in front of your face and feel that little puff of air that comes out when you say, pat, but not bat. I think it's easy to see that this English split is not the only way to do things by looking at some other languages.
1: Yeah. This was something that came up for me when I was learning French because okay. French also has a two-way distinction on stops like P and T and K, but it doesn't have this extra puff of air, which is called aspiration. It just does the thing in your vocal cords the same way that S so and Z so do. Okay. My favorite demonstration of this is there was a movie that came out in in Canada uh, probably a decade or so ago, which is sort of half in English, half in French, and the, the bilingualism is very much a feature of the movie. You know, strong linguists recommend watch it with subtitles in both languages and get a whole experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie is called Bon Cop, Bad Cop." Oh, Good Cop, Bad Cop. So, Good Cop, Bad Cop, but in French. But when I say this so cop has been borrowed into French as a word there and so when I say cop in English I'm producing it with that puff of air cop but when I say it in French because I have a you know learned French young enough I have a, a fairly decent French accent I'm not saying it with that extra puff of air I'm saying bon cop bad cop so there's the same word effectively but because I'm pronouncing it according to each language's sound system because of the word in front of it I'm giving it a different aspiration and also a different vowel sound, but, you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot that differentiates between accents.
0: So In most languages that have this two-way distinction, you have one that's voiced and one that's not. But there's one sound in all of the set of stops that we have where you can't get a voiced version of it.
1: Oh, is this a very special sound?
0: It is a very special sound. It's the glottal stop.
1: Wait, your glottis is your voice box. That's your larynx.
0: <laughs> yes. So To make a glottal stop – you have to close off your vocal folds, bring them together, which means that if you've closed them off, you can't also vibrate them to create the voiced version.
1: You can't also push a stream of air through and have them vibrate through it. Yeah, I don't think that works.
0: And so that's why you only ever get an unvoiced glottal stop.
1: So the glottal stop is the sound in uh oh, which is sort of between the uh, oh. You also often make it if you're like lifting a heavy box or something. And you're just sort of closing off your throat to, to make that tension. <laughs> I think of it as sort of a grunty sound sometimes.
0: And it is a sound in a whole bunch of different languages, uh, including Hawaiian.
1: And sort of in a few very specific contexts in English. And the reason it's special? Because we have a stylized version of it as the Lingthusiasm logo. Uh-huh.
0: So we've discussed two way distinctions between voiced and unvoiced in French, and voiced and unvoiced aspirated in English. But it's possible to have more than two different distinctions because aspiration gives us that extra dimension to play with.
1: Right. And there are languages, so English sort of has a two-way distinction that sort of has some fogginess around what's going on with whether aspiration is important, depending on the position of the word. But some languages treat the uh, so let me try to say this with my French brain, ta, ta, and da. Each as three sounds, and if you heard that as like two T sounds plus a D, or two D sounds plus a T, yeah, that, you might have English brain. <laughs> <laughs> but I was at least trying to produce them in three different ways. And so one of these languages that makes a three-way distinction is Thai. You can see in the the name Thai itself that H there, THI, is because it's pronounced with that extra puff of air, which is sort of a mini H.
0: And Thai is in the Thai language family, which is a T without the H, unaspirated.
1: Ah, very nice. –
0: Which is a set of distinctions we don't make in English, so you might have an English speaker talk about Thai being in the Thai language family. –
1: Right, if you're not making that distinction. Another language that used to make this distinction was ancient Greek. – Ah. – So, in modern Greek, this has shifted. But if you've ever wondered why theta and phi and chi or chi are written with an H, it's because they used to be pronounced theta and ki and p contrasted with tau and pi and kappa. and Then those sounds shifted in a later version of Greek, and so these letter combinations, the th and the ph and the ch, became conventionalized in languages that were being influenced by the Latin alphabet as ways of writing the th, ph, and ch sounds.
0: Yeah, It's definitely worth emphasising that these things aren't set in stone. and As languages are spoken by newer generations, they can change. Apparently, Korean has historically had a three-way distinction, like we've seen Thai had a three-way distinction. But For younger speakers, it's moving towards a two-way distinction, so it is possible to change.
1: Yeah, change various things around.
0: If you've been struggling to hear distinctions that aren't in your native phonologies, that's totally understandable because the point at which voicing starts and how that differs across languages is measured in milliseconds. and The fact that we perceive these differences at all in the languages we do speak is actually quite amazing.
1: Yeah. and I think for me, one of the things that helped make it click was – maybe this is a you know, bi-slash multilingual experience – but thinking, it's not so much that I'm hearing aspiration, it's that this sounds to me like someone who's got a really Englishy accent in French. Yeah. So If someone says – Uh, I don't know, what's a French phrase that a lot of English speakers kind of know? Qu'est-ce que c'est? Oh, boy. Okay, yeah. So that sounds like you have a really Anglo accent on that, because you're saying qu'est-ce que c'est instead of qu'est-ce que c'est.
0: Yeah, I think it's immediately apparent when I open my mouth that my French doesn't get much beyond café French.
1: (laughs) Right, so that's a very good demonstration of Lauren doesn't speak French, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't entirely know what it means,
1: which is probably a good indicator. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's just what is this or what is that? Huh. Or conversely, if you're someone who grew up speaking French, or a language doesn't do this extra puff of air that English does, that's one of the things that contributes to sounding like you have that particular accent when you're speaking English. So it's comprehensible. Like I knew what you were trying to say, but it's something that contributes to that impression of having an accent that comes from a phonology that's arranged a little bit differently.
0: We've covered two-way voicing distinctions. We've covered three-way voicing distinctions. We've got an example of four-way voicing distinction if you want, Gretchen.
1: Amazing. This
0: is a voicing range that is pretty common across languages in the Indo-Aryan family. A lot of those are spoken in India, Nepali as well in Nepal. A lot of languages that are from Sanskrit.
1: So this is things like Hindi, Assamese, Marathi. Lots of languages in that particular area have this four-way distinction. So let me think about the parameters here, right? So you have your vocal folds are either on or off, mm-hmm. buzzing or not buzzing, and you could sort of multiply that by you produce this extra puff of air or you don't produce this extra puff of air.
0: Pretty much. I'll walk you through a minimal set in Hindi. Great. Since I speak Nepali, I can sometimes approximate all of these. We'll see how we go. <laughs> we have tal, dal, tal, and dar.
1: Mm, okay, so definitely my English brain thinks that several of those sound very similar, but I, I believe you that you're producing them differently.
0: And definitely not as well as someone who spent more of their life speaking a language with a four-way distinction. But we have our two-voiced and our two-unvoiced, and one of our unvoiced is aspirated. and The other one uses what we call breathy voice. So It's voiced, but the – Voicing has a little bit of a gap in it that creates this breathiness. So something like dar or bal.
1: So breathiness is something that I think you can also use in English for sort of stylistic effect. Yeah. Like if I want to say ah, oh, how beautiful, how lovely, I'm making the whole thing kind of breath, breath-like, or with that sort of relaxedness of the vocal cords. But if I'm just doing it in this sort of narrow context of on this particular sound, duh then that's making it for for particular contrast between one word to the next, Where is saying, how beautiful. It has a different sort of emotional meaning or connotational <laughs> meaning to saying, how beautiful.
0: Yeah, there's none of that connotation when you're using breathy voice to create those consonants in Hindi or Nepali.
1: Yeah, not something like the difference between in this particular set, you know, beat versus lentil versus platter versus knife edge, which is just this very kind of lexical meaning of here's a word that means something
0: this breathy voice is contrasted with what we've just been calling voicing in phonetics gets called modal voice because it's just your normal one but they needed a technical term for it
1: so is this kind of like when you're doing statistics and you have like the mean and the median and the mode and the mode is the <laughs> one that occurs the most so the modal voice is like this is the one the most of the languages have somewhere so we thought we'd <laughs> call it like the common one it's just there the default are there any languages that make a five-way distinction? Hmm, I don't know off the
0: top of my head, but there is a different kind of distinction that we can make, where we have both breathy voice and modal voice, and we introduce a different voicing quality called creaky.
1: So, there's a language called Halapa Mazatec, mm-hmm. which has creaky voice as one of its options, and creak sort of sounds like ah, ah. It's this very relaxed vocal chords that means that the sound becomes lower because they're looser and it's it has this sound I think of it as kind of a Halloween type sound, like if you're opening a door, you might you might do it. Yeah, just
0: like with breathy voice, we associate it with more vibe related things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not to be confused with vibration.
0: <laughs> Whereas Hapala Mazatec uses it as a way to distinguish vowels. So it has five different vowels that all have either Breathy, modal, or creaky in their pronunciation.
1: So that's like fifteen vowels if you multiply it out by the, the the breathiness and the creakiness. That's great.
0: In total, yeah.
1: And creaky voice is the technical linguistic term, but sometimes it shows up under the name of vocal fry. When people are talking about it in English, specifically for that side of stylistic effect, some English speakers—and I know I do this—if someone wants to go back and do an acoustic analysis of all the "ling enthusiasm" episodes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> do this sort of at the end of a sentence, often to lower your pitch of your voice towards the end of a sentence, which finishes it.
0: Yeah, it's a really good way to drop the pitch because, as you say, it's vibrating less because of that difference in the tension, and that allows you to really emphasize. That you're either at the end of your turn, or you're speaking with some amount of gravity or authority.
1: I also tend to do it when I'm tired. Uh, <laughs> I'm just sort of very relaxed and, like, you know, lying lying down after a long day. Oh, I don't know, just just pass me a glass of water, okay? <laughs> I think that's got some got some creak or some fry.
0: I think the important thing with vocal fry is once you start actually noticing it and the acoustic features of it, you notice that it's done by a really wide range of people. It can be done by male radio hosts. It can be done by female podcasters. It can be done by Gretchen when she's tired. pops up in all kinds of places.
1: Yeah, vocal fry sometimes comes up in the media as, you know, here's this thing that they're criticising for people, but it's just one of the many things you can do with your vocal folds, and all of them are fine.
0: I also find it very reassuring that in a study from five years ago, people under 40 find it a way of sounding authoritative.
1: Oh great, so that's under forty-five now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, eventually all of the authoritative people will just be vocal <laughs> frying. Doing interesting things with voicing. I don't know of any languages with six distinctions. You know, maybe there are some that, that make even more, but what's the minimum number of distinctions? Like we've got a lot of languages that do a two-way distinction in voicing.
0: But there are also a lot of languages that have no distinction in voicing in terms of their fricatives and their stops that we've looked at so far.
1: This is a lot of the indigenous languages in the North American continent, Algonquian languages, uh, most of the Iroquoian languages, except for apparently Wendat, but Iroquois, Mohawk, Cree, Ojibwe, a bunch of these languages, sometimes sounds get produced with a little bit more vocal fold vibration, sometimes they get produced without it. But that's sort of a thing that you do depending on where it is in its position in the word or what your sort of mood is at the moment as a speaker, the same way that you could use breathiness or creak in English to convey a stylistic effect, but it doesn't change the meaning of the word. So voicing isn't important for changing the meaning of a word in those languages
0: you also find it in South America a lot, across the languages of the Pacific and Southeast Asia and South China. Uh, Australian languages are phonetically famous for having this feature, in fact, on the World Atlas of Linguistic Structures map that we'll link to where you can see all these no-voicing distinction dots. Only Murimpata in Australia is a language that has a voicing distinction. The rest are all uh, without.
1: Literally, all of the other ones. Uh, I yeah. think you know, Hawaiian and some of uh, languages like Maori are also don't have a voicing distinction if you're talking about sort of South Pacific languages.
0: But it's something that's very common in Europe and Africa, and I think that's why voicing is really baked into the design of the International Phonetic Alphabet.
1: Yeah, uh, the International Phonetic Alphabet is ultimately based on the Latin alphabet and the Greek alphabet because that's the languages that the people who were making the first international phonetic alphabet we're working from mm-hmm. and they wanted to make it easy to type for them on existing typewriters which you know fair enough and so we've got these sorts of pairs of symbols like p and b and s and z that represent this voicing distinction that sort of sometimes get instantiated a little bit differently depending on the language but you have this sort of pair whereas other things like breathiness or creak get represented by adding an extra little bit a diacritic onto those sounds which it's kind of interesting to think about like an alt IPA where it got invented in Australia and they were like, yeah, voicing, I don't know, a few languages do that, but we don't know very many of them. Uh, <laughs> let's just use a, a diacritic for that as well.
0: Instead, where you have this voicing distinction, say, T and a D character, spatially, it's very meaningful on the IPA where the voiceless one is put on the left and the voiced one is put on the right of the pair.
1: Right, and because ideally I guess if you were doing this chart with a voicing distinction is you have sort of where in the mouth the sound is produced and what bits of the mouth are in contact with each other to produce it, and then you'd want to have like a third dimension, like a three dimensional IPA chart. <laughs> to have like the voiced one on top of the unvoiced one, like it pops out of the page, which I think we're not gonna make lens cloths of. No. <laughs> the lens cloths will be in three dimensions, but the chart will be printed on them in the usual two dimensions of printing things.
0: Ah yes, we are working with the same standard physical plane. And we kept that left side unvoiced, right side voiced pairing in our redesign of the IPA chart.
1: But also we put some circles to indicate the voiceless ones so that you can sort of have that as a quick reference and I think the circles look cool.
0: <laughs> I think they look very neat as well
1: because the usual IPA chart has a lot of text on it. You know, it has labels for all the rows and columns. It has things like when symbols occur in pairs, the leftmost one represents a voiceless one. And this is of course very useful if you're new to the chart, but if you're looking for something that's more of an art object that's a little bit useful as a reference thing, maybe we could just use a fun circle and if you know what a few of them mean, you can use the circle to remember the rest of them.
0: You can see a picture of our redesigned IPA chart in the show notes for this episode and the lens cloth offer is running until the 5th of October 2022.
1: And please do at some point when you get a chance, you know, put your head to your throat and try out some voicing. It's really fun.
0: Ah. Uh...
1: For more Lingthusiasm and links to all the things mentioned in this episode, including how to get a cool redesigned IPA lens cloth, go to lingthusiasm.com. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, wherever else you get your podcasts, and you can follow at Lingthusiasm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can get IPA scarves, not judging your grammar stickers, and other Lingthusiasm merch at lingthusiasm.com slash merch. I can be found as at Gretchen A. McSee on Twitter, my blog is allthingslinguistic.com, and my book about internet language is called Because Internet.
0: I tweet and blog as Superlinguo. Have you listened to all the Lingthusiasm episodes and you wish there were more? You can get access to an extra Lingthusiasm episode to listen to every month, plus our entire archive of bonus episodes to listen to right now at patreon.com slash Lingthusiasm, or follow the links from our website. Have you gotten really into linguistics and you wish you had more people to talk with about it? Patrons can also get access to our Discord chat room to chat with other linguistics fans. Plus, all patrons help keep the show ad-free. Recent bonus topics include a behind-the-scenes on running an MRI study and the history of like in English, as well as a historical bunny study. And until October 5, 2022, you can get an aesthetic IPA lens cloth for being a patron. Can't afford to pledge? That's okay too. We also really appreciate it if you can recommend Lingthusiasm to anyone in your life who's curious about language.
1: Lingthusiasm is created and produced by Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gaughan. Our senior producer is Claire Gaughan. Our editorial producer is Sarah Dapirella. Our production assistant is Martha Susui Billens. And our production manager is Liz McCullough. Our music is Ancient City by The Triangles. Stay Lingthusiastic!